reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Hey, let's pray and then we'll get into this passage. Uh, As we continue in our series called No Other Name, uh, we're looking at who Jesus is. Let's pray though. Um, God, thank you uh, that you are good, God, um, the God with authority, authority spiritually, as we saw last week, um, and authority physically, as we saw uh, last week, but then we see again in this passage. We thank you too, God, that you are good, and we pray this morning as we hear your word that you would challenge and change us. We pray this for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. When we're dealing with our problems it's always important that we get to our biggest problem first. Uh, But look, in that video, it does show us that she has a big problem. Her biggest problem is the nail in her head. It's not her headaches. It's not that her sweaters are snagged. It's the nail. Now, look, I get that that video is trying to say that sometimes people just need to debrief. I understand that, that sometimes people don't need answers. I've been there. I get that. But there is something else going on there, right? She has a bigger problem, her biggest problem, and really she needs to deal with that. Now, now the reality is, as we come here this morning as a, a bunch of different people, as we come here this morning, we all have our own individual problems, 
Uh, that is just the reality of, of meeting together. We don't claim to be a group of perfect people who have it all together. All of us here this morning have some sort of issues going on in our life. It might be our physical problems with our physical health. It might be our mental health issues that we're trying to work, with, work through. It might be our job that's stressing us or our situations that we find ourselves in. But all of us have our problems as we gather here this morning. Right? That's just true, whether it's relational or a lack of relational or whatever else it is. We all have our issues. Now, the first thing is it's good to know that as we gather, we don't claim to be perfect people. Right? So we can actually hang out together knowing that we're both on the same page here. But the second thing is this, and we're going to see this in our passage today as well, is that regardless of what's going on in front of us, Regardless of whatever our present reality is, our present horror, our present problems, we all have deeper problems. We all have a greater problem, our greatest problem. And what we're going to do in this passage today is we're going to see a couple of things. Firstly, we're going to ask this question, what is our greatest problem? But then we're going to see how the solution to this problem helps us in our present realities. So if you have your Bibles there today, we have them, uh, we see it kick off in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Again, it's going to be on the screen, but this is what Mark tells us. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What's our biggest problem? Jesus mentions it there in verse 5. It's got something to do with our sin. But we'll get to that in a little bit because this story is a cracker. So what we see in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, if we remember in the back of chapter 1, if you have your Bibles there, you can kind of see it. Jesus shows his goodness. We get a glimpse into his heart as he heals the leper. He says to the leper, don't tell anyone. And what does the leper do? He tells everyone. So Jesus' popularity gains so much uh, that he has to go in lonely places. We see in verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 45. Uh, then in chapter 2, he's back. Right? He's back into town. Uh, he's come back after a few days uh, to refill his introversion stocks. He's back in town and everyone's around. Right, uh, A large crowd of people gather around him, so much so to the point where as Jesus is teaching, there's not even room at the door. So the picture we have here is of a house, and there's so many people gathered around that you can't even listen to what Jesus is teaching to in that house um, at the front door, right? So it's kind of like if you had a housemate that invited your whole suburb over. That's the picture going on here. Jesus is speaking in a house, and there are lots of people around. There's not even room at the front door to listen to Jesus. So verse 3, what we see is some men have a paralyzed friend and they want to get him to Jesus. Now, if we see that paralyzed man, if we see that paralyzed man, what do we want to say is his biggest problem? A man who can't walk, who can't do anything, relies completely on other people. It's tempting to say his, the fact that he's paralyzed, right? Right? That's what the temptation is, because we know, even today, that being paralyzed is a terrible thing. 
And back then, it was even worse. I mean, they didn't have the technology that we have now. This guy literally lived on a mat. That was his life. If he was to move, it's because people took him there. If he was to eat, it's because people brought him food. This is the paralyzed man. And his mates, they go, okay, here's his paralysis. Let's take him to Jesus because we know that Jesus can heal him. So they come up with a plan. Let's go to the top of the roof. We'll dig a hole and go in. Now imagine this. You're sitting in the house as Jesus is preaching. I don't know if you can picture that. I mean, in my mind, it's a hot day. There's lots of people around, right? Lots of people in your bubble, in your zone. It's crowded. And Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching, mid-sermon, all of a sudden, there is a scratching on the roof. Nah, I didn't get anyone up there. I mean, that would have been pretty cool. But, but all of a sudden, mid-sermon, there's a scratching on the roof and dirt starts coming down, right? The houses, the roofs were made out of, like, they had mud roofs, basically. And so you're sitting there listening to Jesus. You hear this scratching, dirt's coming down. You're thinking, what's going on? And then the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you see four guys, they lower this paralyzed man down to Jesus. Now, my first thought is, well done, right? You just put a hole in the roof to get your mate to Jesus. That's a good, I mean, maybe this is one of the first building committees. Who, know, who, knows, who knows how many meetings they had to make this happen? But they did it. The, the hole's in the roof, they get him to Jesus, and here the paralyzed man is in front of Jesus. Now, what are we all hoping? In that moment, what are we all hoping Jesus says? We've heard how he healed the leper. We heard how he can heal people. We're hoping he says to this paralyzed man, get up, right? We're all hoping he gets up and walks. That's what the paralyzed man is hoping as well. It's what his friends are hoping as well. Everyone's hoping, man, how great would it be if we could see this paralyzed man get up and walk? So what does Jesus do? Well, verse 5, he sees their faith which is interesting in and of itself because throughout the Bible, faith is not just belief in Jesus, it's accompanied with actions. James says that later on. He says, faith without works is dead. Jesus looks to these men who believe that Jesus can heal and they do something about it. And then verse 5, what does he say to them? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. We weren't exactly expecting that. We weren't thinking that's what Jesus would say here. I mean, we were all hoping he'd just say, get up and walk. But instead he says, your sins are forgiven. So what kind of game is Jesus playing at? What is Jesus doing here by saying this? Well, actually what we see Jesus doing lines up with the rest of the Bible is Jesus can see his physical, his present reality. But Jesus is going deeper. He's dealing with a bigger problem. He's dealing with this man's biggest problem that's sin. And as we think about our biggest problem, that's true for us. And the reason it's true is because of the nature of what it is, who it's against, and what it results in. Sin is our rejection of God, our ignorance of God. Sin is the, the bad things we do and the good things we don't do. But it's basically just me saying, actually, I want to live my life how I want to live. I want to do the things that I want to do consistently and, and over and over again. I just want to keep living my life. Now, maybe it's an out-and-out -out rejection, or maybe it's something that happens you know, in pockets of our day, but we all have this in us, this, play, this, this moment where we have ignored God or rejected Him. Sin is that. It lies in all of our hearts, and the reason it's a problem is because it's against God. 
It's against God, the God of the universe, the God that made all things, the good God, and God should punish sin. In fact, He will punish sin. We see that in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So you can see why this is a bigger problem than the present reality, because this is an eternal one. This is something that affects our eternity here. The Bible uses the word hell. This is our greatest problem. Despite however hard the present realities we are going through, even like this paralyzed man, there is a greater problem of sin. So if this is our greater problem, if this is our greatest problem, our nail in the head, if you will, what's the solution? Well, the only solution we have to offending God is if God forgives us. It's the only way we can get out of this. Now, we understand this relationship uh, relationally even today. So uh, let's pretend that we don't, have to, we don't have to think that hard, but uh, I'm married to Elizabeth, and in our home, uh, I'm selfish to her. I put me first, and I wrong Elizabeth. Now, as we're dealing with that, you come into our home, you walk into us dealing with that, and you come over to me, and you look at me in the eyes, and you say, Ben, I forgive you for what you did to Elizabeth. What's that going to solve? Nothing. If anything, that's making things worse because I'm saying, look, they forgive me. Why don't you do it? But, but that, uh, don't, let's, let's not play this out in real life. But you can see, right? Like relationally, if I do something wrong to Elizabeth, the only way that I can get forgiveness is if she gives it to me, if she forgives me. Now, if we have wronged God, which is what sin is, The only way that we can get out of this is if God himself decides to forgive us. Is if God himself decides to forgive us. Because no one else can do that. No one else can forgive sin. Only God himself can. So we can start to see how big what Jesus is saying really is. Right? Like he's not just making the big claim that your sins are forgiven. He's making a bigger claim that here in the flesh, in history, is God with us. You see that, right? Only God can forgive sin. Now, on top of that, this isn't today where every, I feel like every celebrity, maybe not every, maybe it's just Kanye West, and every second song that he does, he claims to be God. Jesus isn't in that environment. In that space, if you claim to be God, you could be killed on the spot. So Jesus' claim is a pretty big claim. And the teachers of the law, they get this. And in verse 7, we see uh, there, they said, what, what kind of guy is this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And they're right. No one can forgive sin except God, because we have wronged God. Only God can forgive sins. So they get the weight of what Jesus is saying. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, verse 8, because he knows what they're thinking, because he's God, he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and uh, take your mat and walk? Now, that's a good question. In fact, we could wrestle with this for a little while if we wanted to, because I think you can go either way here. You could say, actually, it's easier to forgive sins or to say that your sins are forgiven, because you don't have to prove that. But to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, well, that's something you have to prove, right? Or you could go the other way. You could go, well, actually depending on the environment and, you know, back in the day with, I don't know, witch doctors and stuff like that, maybe they could make a paralyzed man. But to forgive sins, that's something only God can do. Or you might just be sitting there thinking, actually, from where I'm sitting, both sound impossible. 
Either way, I think whatever way we're locking in, whatever answer we're locking in there, it's a tentative one. But Jesus' point isn't for us to get caught up in this. He's actually proving a point here. And we see that in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he does. The paralyzed man gets up and walks. Can you see that? I mean, how amazing this is. Someone we've seen who has been paralyzed, who can't do anything, their their life, they rely completely on others. And yet Jesus here speaks to him, tells him to get up, and he does. This is a new lease to his life. This is a whole new life for this man. Jesus heals him from his paralysis. But there's something bigger going on here. And the bigger thing going on here is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin because he is God among us. His healing proves that he is God and so Jesus is the solution to our sin. But as we see, if we keep reading through Mark, Jesus isn't the solution to sin just simply by speaking. Right? God doesn't forgive us our sin just by speaking that we are forgiven or by forgetting what we've done. He can't do that. He can't because he's both good and just. It's the same reason like a a dad can't simply get past the fact that his son's just slapped him in the face. If you just forget that, we would all say, well, that dad's neither good nor just in that moment. For God to forgive us our sins, he simply can't say, I'm going to forget it. He simply doesn't see what you've done and say, okay, and and what I've done and say, I'm going to forget this. I'm just going to look past this. He can't do that because he's God. And we know this as well in our relationships that when someone wrongs us, it's never just this, I don't know, hypothetical thing. There's always damage done. So it's kind of like this. If in the car park later on after church, you back into my car, um, you've wronged me. Let's say there's $2,000 damage or something like that, which is the cost of the car. So let's say you back into my car. Now, I have two options there. Um, I can either tell you you need to pay for that which we'd all say is pretty normal, and that's the normal response in that moment. You can pay for that. Or, or I can say, I'm going to forgive you. But if I forgive you, the damage doesn't just disappear, does it? I'm actually absorbing the cost by forgiving you. I'm taking it. I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to let you walk free while I pay the cost that you've done to me. Our sin is the same, so, so it's come up against God. We have wronged God. Now, if God is going to forgive us, he can't simply forget it. If God is going to forgive us, he has to absorb the cost. A guy called Tim Keller says it like this. When someone has wronged you, it means they owe you. They have a debt with you. Forgiveness is to absorb the cost of the debt yourself. You pay the price yourself and you refuse the exact price out of the person in any way. Forgiveness is then to A, free the person from the penalty of sin, by B, paying the price yourself. So, how did God forgive? We are told that he does not remember our sins. That cannot mean God literally forgets what has happened. Rather, it means he sends away the penalty for them. 
He does not bring the incidents to mind and does not let them affect the way he deals with us. We are told Jesus pays the price for the sins. It is finished means it has been paid in full. Jesus doesn't simply be the solution to our sin by forgetting what we've done. He absorbs the cost. He goes to the cross and he pays the price that we deserve. He dies on the cross to pay the punishment that we deserve. That's how Jesus forgives sin. And that's how Jesus can say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Right? So our biggest problem is sin. It's an eternal thing. It's bigger than anything going on in front of us. And the only solution to that is Jesus. So then the final question is, how do we know we have this? How can we get this? Or more pressingly, who is it that gets this? Who belongs? Well, that's what Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see who gets this solution to our sin. And we see it in verse 13. The story goes on like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Who belongs? Sinners. Now, there is a lot going on in this little bit, right? So, so we see, just summing up, uh, our biggest problem is sin. The only solution is in Jesus who goes to the cross and absorbs the cost for us. But here we start to get a gauge of who actually gets this. So Jesus goes to Levi and he calls him. Levi is Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew. He calls him and like Andrew, Peter, James and John before him, drops his stuff and follows Jesus. Then Jesus goes and eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now to really understand what's happening here, we do have to understand this phrase that Mark uses, tax collectors and sinners. Now you might have heard a little bit about this before. Uh, Tax collectors were hated in the day. They weren't just accountants or auditors. They were people who stole money from the Jews to pay to the Romans, and then they kept money for themselves to make themselves rich. But it's worse than that. The tax collectors were socially and religiously completely outcasts. This is something that just, it sounds completely crazy to us. So tax collectors weren't allowed to go to synagogues. Right? That If they exist today, they're not allowed to come in the front door of church. Religiously, that's what was happening, the environment they're in. On top of that, tax collectors weren't allowed to be a witness at court. So if something happens, you better hope that your witness isn't a tax collector because that's not going to count for anything. They were outed by their families, disgraced by their families. And finally, and this is the weirdest one I reckon, if a tax collector touched your house your house would become unclean. Your house then would become religiously unclean and you have to ceremonially do some things to make that place better. This is who tax collectors were. So naturally what happened is then tax collectors are grouped with sinners. And, and again, this is, it gets even more weird. So sinners were uh, murderers, 
Right? This is who the religious people of the day thought, who thought sinners were. They were murderers. They were prostitutes. They were thieves. But then catch this. They were gamblers. They were people who raced doves. That was the same group. People who raced doves. And they were tax collectors. Can you see how strange that sounds? Right? Like it's like if we group jaywalkers, someone who just crosses the road when they shouldn't have, with, uh, if you've been watching the news this week in, in court, there was this story of this, this man who killed his wife because she laughed at him. Now, how do we feel about that guy? That is ridiculous. It's horrible. That's who the tax collector was. So can you feel the weight of what Jesus is doing here by calling this guy? And he doesn't just call him, he comes over to him, he he calls him, and then he goes and eats with the rest of them as well. This is a big deal, right? Murder is thieves. This is the taste that people had in their mouths of these people. And Jesus is hanging out with them. Again, what a heart Jesus has for the outcasts. He goes and he eats with them. Now, now as the religious people of the day see this, right? they're like, why is he doing this? And then Jesus responds in verse 17, I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. I haven't come for the righteous, I have come for the sinners. And what Jesus is saying there is, I haven't come simply to give good advice. I haven't come to give advice to people who think they're right before God, I've come to bring good news to sinners. Who belongs? It's the people who realize that we before God have nothing. Jesus came for sinners. He saves sinners. He came for the tax collector. He came for the murderer. He came for the thief. He came for the prostitute. He came for sinners like us. So our biggest problem is sin. The solution is Jesus as he absorbs the cost. Who gets this? It's Sinners. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as we read maybe a familiar story that we've seen before? Well, the first thing it means for us today is that we actually recognize our state before God. We are sinful. Our ignorance, our rejection of God means that we are in the group of sinners. We've ignored God's law. We've rejected Him at some point. So we are sinners, which means that we have this great problem. Right? A great problem, an eternal problem. And so that's the first thing that we realize, that we are sinners. But the second thing that we realize is that we don't stop at that first point, but we move to the fact that Jesus is the solution to that problem. He's good news. This is good news, right? It's good news that as we repent and believe and come to Jesus, He is faithful to forgive us and He does forgive us. He rescues us from the fact that we have ignored God and deserve death. Jesus saves. It's good news. It's not just good advice. This is such good news. But then the third thing that we do is we do this. And and if you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is in that space of that second thing of turning to Jesus, I mean, our greatest hope at Southside is that more and more people of our community come and see Jesus. We'd love to help you figure out what this means for you. And our deepest plea is that you come to know Jesus. But then finally, the third thing that we do and that we realize is that as Jesus deals with our biggest problem, 
As Jesus is the only solution, as he absorbs the cost, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because as we see Jesus and the fact that he's dealt with our biggest problem, it helps our present reality. As we see that Jesus has saved us, not just from an eternity without God, but to a glorious eternity without suffering and sickness and sin, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the result is it actually helps our present reality. Because I know that as we come here this morning, many of us have some sort of present reality that we're wrestling through. I understand that. Like Some of us have deep physical problems that we're trying to figure out. That the burden of our health recently has become nearly too much. For some of us here this morning, we have mental health things that we're wrestling through. Our anxiety and our stress, whatever it is, has become a battle that sometimes just feels too big to bear. I know that this morning some of us have deep stress. It's affecting our health. Some of us feel relationally. I mean, our our relationships are falling apart. Or some of us just don't have the relationships we wish we did. All of us here this morning have some sort of present horror that we're working through. And if we don't right now, it's coming for us. It's the reality of life. Now here's the struggle with it all. Jesus doesn't promise to heal our paralysis. I mean, the kids' church today, and I I love this language, they're speaking about it like this. God promised a big rescue from this man's sin. But he also gave him the little rescue as well from, his, from being par- paralyzed. The, the challenge for us is that God doesn't promise us the little rescue. He doesn't promise us that we will escape whatever present horror that we're in. He promises something bigger than that. He promises us a big rescue where he will deal with our problem of sin and be the solution And as he promises that, he gives us a hope, a future hope, a glorious hope of a place with no suffering, with no sickness and no sin and no death. He gives us that hope. It's a sure hope. And so our job then is to keep our eyes fixed on this hope. And as we we keep our eyes fixed on the big rescue, it helps us in our present realities. This is illustrated to me recently uh, in a book that I'm reading. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And um, it's actually about, it's, a, it's not a Christian book. It's, a, it's actually a guy who's a Jewish philosopher. And he's writing about his reflections in a Nazi concentration camp. And in many ways, this is an eye-opening book. And if you know about what happened in those camps. The, the horror is too real. And he's writing on his reflections of this, and he says this, interestingly enough, amongst other things. Uh, he was liberated at the end of the war and escaped, and he said this, there's one main difference between those who survived and those who didn't survive in these Nazi concentration camps. One main difference And the big difference was those who didn't survive lost sight of the future 
He says that. He says they let themselves decline. They let themselves decline because they lost sight of the future and his words are they started thinking in retrospect. Questions like what if? If only this played out differently for me. And he said as soon as they lost sight of the future, they started to decline and it would be a couple of days and they'd pass away. But he noticed this of those who did survive, him and the others. It was their ability to think about the future. And he says this, It is a peculiarity of man that we only live by looking to the future. And this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of his existence, although sometimes he has to force his mind to the task. The thing he noticed about those who survived and those who didn't was those who survived kept looking to the future. They had a bright outlook of the future, whether it was uh, being reignited with their, reunited with their family, whether it was because many of them were professionals, uh, whether it was like him was writing about his experience, whether it was getting back into the field of science or whatever it was, those who survived kept their eyes on the future. The big difference between those who survived and those who didn't, those who didn't survive lost sight of the future. Those who did kept looking to the future. God doesn't promise to deal with our present horror. He doesn't promise the little rescue, but he does promise a bigger rescue from our biggest problem of sin. He promises to deal with that so that we can know our eternity is sure, is good, is a place with no suffering or sickness or death or loneliness or whatever it is. And if we can keep our eyes fixed on this future, the, the thing is, it helps us in our present horror. It helps us in our present reality deal with whatever we're going through. And so the challenge is for us to keep our eyes fixed on the future because we will want to get caught up in our moment, in our present realities. And, and I know that some of them are hard and the burden is real. The burden for many of us is too big to handle. It feels that way. But if we can keep looking to the hope that Jesus has promised us, it's going to help us in our present horror. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's keep our eyes fixed on this glorious future. And as we do, it's going to help us deal with whatever present rubbish that we have to work through. Let's keep our eyes fixed on him who is the solution to our biggest problem in sin. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you do promise the big rescue. That, that you promise to deal with our biggest problem of sin. And you don't just forget our sin, you actually deal with it at the cross. You absorb the cost. Thank you, Jesus, for this hope that we have. Lord, we know that many of us have a present burden to bear. We know that sometimes you do give little rescues out of these things. But sometimes you don't as well. And so we ask that even in our present burdens that you would help us to keep looking to the future. The future you have secured for us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.